Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Alumless. Thank you for tuning in. Here on the show, we talk about engagement strategies and educational advancement. I am Ryan Catherwood. And the gentleman there on the other side of the screen is the one and only Chris Marshall. How are you today, Chris? I'm great. Happy St. Patrick's Day. St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, here we are. Um, are you? Do you celebrate? You're wearing green, which I can I wore appreciate. Green. My family just came up to say goodbye. They're off for the day, all dressed in green. So very Irish family here. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I'm only like a quarter Irish. So I, I have yeah. a green underwear on today, which is too much, in, <laughs> too much information, right? But well, we're glad to have you. We've got a great show. We are broadcasting live today, Friday, March 17th. I would thank all of our listeners for making Alumless part of your week. And those of uh, uh, those teams out there that are listening to us uh, as a group, we love that. Uh, if you are an alumni engagement professional and you enjoy Alumless, we definitely encourage you to make a little event, a little team event around Alumless every other Friday at 1130. Or if you're listening to us later after the fact on the podcast edition of Alumless, maybe you're cooking dinner, working out, we're happy to have you on the show. Thank you for tuning in and making Alumless part of your week. All right. Well, we've got a great show today. We are featuring a fabulous guest, Chris Kendrick from the London School of Economics and Political Science. If you have any questions for Chris Kendrick or Chris Marshall or myself, of course, please use the comment section in the LinkedIn event where you are listening now, and we will try to uh, tackle your question during the live broadcast. If we can't get to it during the live broadcast, we will try to tackle it during our bonus section with Chris. And of course, you can listen to that bonus section uh, on the podcast version. Uh, so, all right, enough of the wind up. Chris, um, you know, we have our first overseas guest today, which I think is pretty cool. I'm kind of surprised now 21 episodes in, we we hadn't done that before, but I'm glad we're doing it now. And Chris Kendrick is the perfect guest to start with. Um, when was the last time you were overseas for a work-related project and, and what was it all about? Um, overseas for work pre-pandemic. Family vacation last summer, but uh, but for for work it was a um, industry conference in London at the, at the British Museum. Actually, it was the last time I had a chance. I was speaking at a conference and it was hosted at the British Museum, and it was amazing. I love everything about being in London and love traveling. Love traveling abroad and uh, something more of us should do. I think more of us Americans should do. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's been since pre-pandemic since I've been overseas as well. And I think my last trip was the Educate Plus conference in Auckland. So, you know, there's CASE that has a presence in the Asia Pacific region, but there's another entity in that region called Educate Plus that puts on a conference every two years and has a great uh, attendance, hundreds of folks in that part of the world. Uh, but yeah, it's been well. You're pretty well traveled. Do you know the number of countries you've been to? Is that something you have on the top of your head? That's a good question. I have probably just really been to only a handful. You, yeah. The UK, Australia, New Zealand, been to the Netherlands, um, Fiji, but mainly in the South Pacific and a little in the UK. You're probably more well-traveled than I am. I'm at 17, and I feel like that's yeah. small, but it's more than most, I think. But I, I have some friends. I know a colleague is, is listening. He's he's in the 90s of different countries, so it's amazing. Some people are really traveled, which is neat. Yeah. Maybe people can put in the chat, in the comments, how many countries they've been to. It'd be pretty cool to see. How do, also, Ryan, I had somebody ask me this after the last broadcast. How do they put a comment in if they're watching it live on LinkedIn? Is it just putting into the LinkedIn comments? Yeah, comments, yep. comments yep. on LinkedIn. And we can see those comments here in the what's called StreamYard. So we use a tool called StreamYard to broadcast live on LinkedIn and on YouTube at the same time. And so if folks put in comments, we can see those here in the interface. Uh, and so uh, please do that. That'd be great. I'd say if you're listening, we'd love to hear from you. Throw in um, how many countries you've traveled to in your career or your life. Let's be beneath the same. That, there you go. Uh, we've got the, our listeners have a challenge from Chris Marshall to add into the chat in the comment section. Well, as I mentioned, today is our first international guest on Alumnus, which is definitely exciting. Uh, we often work with partners, both domestically and abroad, uh, that have a global engagement strategy. And that's what we're going to talk about today is global engagement and some of the challenges that come with it. 
But Chris, when I when I tee up that topic, you know, challenges around global engagement, what's kind of the first thing that comes to mind for you? Yeah, the, always the first thing that comes to mind is is this: is the tension between. I'm hearing an echo. Are we all right? I think you're okay. I heard a little one, but yeah. we'll press the on. The tension between the fact that the vast majority of most U.S.-based institutions, alumni population, are domestic, and often, especially the type of, depending on the type of institution, frankly, if you're a state institution in the middle of the country, even a regional public institution, your percentage of international alumni is pretty small, yet there's an in, often an institutional priority around global engagement, global fill in the blank. And the, the tension between wanting to engage your alumni who live in the United States, who live in your state, live in your region or city, um, where there's a large population versus the institutional goal to be more global in our presence in every way, how do you reconcile that? We don't do a good enough job in, in, in engaging our alums locally, let alone globally. And so that tension always is something that comes to my mind first. And it's an interesting one. I, I think there's lots of reasons to be global in our approach in all ways, for, from recruitment of students to partnerships with other universities to potential career seeking, you know, graduates. And but it, it is a, an interesting tension because you know a typical public institution's international population in the U.S. is going to be less than five percent. A little bit higher for private institutions, but it's very small. So, um, yeah. but I, I understand that, and we're going to talk about somebody who knows how to think about this really well. So, Chris, Chris Kendrick is our perfect person for this. Yeah, and no doubt, I would imagine um, Chris is going to share some of those challenges. Uh, LSC being a very global, very global institution, yep. but uh, with a great huge population of alumni that live probably in the greater London area. All right. Well, let's not guess about what Chris Kendrick yeah. is going to tell us. Let's bring him out to the show. Hello, Chris Kendrick. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Chris, good Great to see you. We're fortunate to have you. Thank you for making time for Alumless. I'm sure it's about the last thing you've got on your plans before you head into the weekend. It's, it's a nice Friday afternoon activity, yes. <laughs> awesome. Well, in our conversations, uh, you know, before the show, we we discussed the challenges associated with building a modern global engagement strategy. How is your team thinking about engaging LSE alumni and supporters around the world? Well, uh, just to go back to Chris's point where you mentioned, is it 5% of, of US alumni typically overseas? A public institution. Yeah. Public institution, sorry. 64% of our LSE alumni community wow. is based wow. Uh, outside the UK. So that immediately speaks to the wonderful diversity of our alumni body, but also to some of the, the challenges we face in delivering programs that meet everyone's various needs. So we we focus on this in different ways through our strategy. We have a wonderful network of alumni chapters and volunteers across the world through our alumni association. We know that they are the best ambassadors for the institution out in the world. So when people can't come back to campus or be near us, we know there are people organizing activities with and for each other and also on our behalf around the world. Uh, a second area is to really make our digital proposition better, so our content better and to try to make it bespoke and regionally variant. We're not there yet. We're in the process of, of improving how we work with, um, with different audiences to make our content more relevant. There, there can be a tendency to project out from London, not recognising well, we're, we're inviting you to event on campus next week. Maybe that's not, not the way to go. So we've got much better over the past four or five years in how we target people. And then third, the third aspect to it is investing in our team infrastructure to provide a better way of developing those programs so that we can coordinate it well. And that means having alumni engagement resource focusing on regional areas. So we've just created two new roles to focus on Asia and Europe. We already have an office in New York to focus on the North American audience so that we can develop um, volunteer support, content programs that have a bit more nuance to them, a bit more um specific purpose to, to those audiences and I think you've been speaking about the pandemic at the start here as desperate as the pandemic was that really forced us into action as a sector and I, and I imagine it was the same for the, you in the US we were so heavily reliant on in-person event activity now through the pandemic we all learned on the hoof we were suddenly having people you know I'm sat in my son's bedroom here today you're sat in various parts of your homes too that was suddenly how we could operate but we could still continue to keep the show on the road and draw people near I think we've got to learn from here in the next phases. And I think we'll talk about that a bit later on as well. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And we learned a, a lot about 
uh, the opportunities that exist through our content and through digital. And it's been really interesting, at least here in the States, to see how the trend is definitely shifting right back towards in-person engagement, which makes a lot of sense, right? Uh, we now can visit again with our with uh, groups of people freely. Uh, but um, what did we learn about digital that was so useful and helpful that we can carry forward and make sure that we don't forget? Um, but of course, you have plenty of graduates that live in the greater London area. I think you said, was it 64%, 65% was the number so, of international? Yes, so, yeah, so, yeah, so 36% of our alumni base are international. But of so we've got about 64,000 alumni in the UK with the vast, mid, well, 75% or so based around London and the surrounding area, yeah. And so how do those folks, the folks that live around LSE, you know, what, what have you uncovered about their engagement preferences? So we probably are able to adhere more closely to what was the traditional model for engagement, having the campus attraction and being able to be around in person. Although to your earlier point in the conversation, I think we're finding that people had um, digital fatigue post-pandemic. Everyone wanted to come back to campus. We're actually actually seeing now some trends in a bit of fall off in in-person attendance too so we've got to work our way through that we don't yet have all the data so we've got some questions to ask about what the best balance might be but very definitely for people in London there is that physical incentive to be able to, to come together on campus and, and network just before the pandemic we opened an alumni centre which is a fabulous space on campus we're one of the few UK institutions uh, to my knowledge to have though have one of those we had it for six months and then the pandemic hit. So it actually became a testing centre. It actually served a purpose for the community, but we hadn't rolled it out um, with any great um, momentum before we were forced to all, all start working remotely. In the year since it's reopened, we've had about 7,000 bespoke visits, which is absolutely fantastic. And it shows that people from around the world, but obviously in London at the time, it's a, it's a front door to campus for them. So we're bringing them back into, into the programme and then it's helping to, lead to other things such as data updates conversations where they can engage with current students as well it's a really really vi a vibrant hub on campus for us but yeah we're trying to work out what the balance needs to look like if you have the ability to be in and on campus we've got the public lecture program which is broadcast around the world as, as podcasts and, and streams but to physically be able to be a part of the environment community is something that we know we're, we're fortunate to have in London I think it's how we engage more broadly that, that still is a bit of a challenge that we are working through yeah. Um, well, I actually have a challenge for our listeners as well. I would actually love if you're listening live in the chat to hear from pre-pandemic in-person event attendance levels to now. Are you seeing more participation, more event participation in person about the same? Or are you seeing a drop compared to pre-pandemic levels? There we go. Another. I've added another challenge to our mm -hmm. comment section. Let's see if there's a some takers. But so Chris, we last, uh, Chris Marshall, we had one of the challenges of having two Chris's on uh, an episode of Alumnus is fortunately we have a script, right? Uh, but last show we had Dory Sontag from Gonzaga on the show to talk about athletics alumni engagement. Uh, but that's really a US based dynamic, right? I mean, there's not intercollegiate athletics uh, that's comparable really in uh, the UK, Canada, Australia, other places around the world. How do you think that changes the calculus on where to apply resources when it comes to engagement strategies? Yeah, I mean, well, I do think, though, that there, while there's not that same fervor we have around, for example, March Madness going on right now, last night, and tonight, good luck to Gonzaga tonight, by the way. Um, the uh, UK is different in that regard. Everywhere else in the world is different. But there's still, I think, strong affiliation to sport. I mean, if you rode crew, if you played rugby or played football, as we say, okay. um, your affiliation to those groups, I think, will still be strong. You may not have the same sort of collegiate version that we have here in the U.S. So I do think there's affinity. I do still, still think there's yeah. affinity. But affinity, but not fan, maybe, right? Yeah, um, probably kind of the difference. Difference. Fandom. Fandom, no. Affinity, yes. Maybe that's yeah. right. Well, I would love to hear Chris answer this, too. But my, my take on this is, though, that it comes down to the two words that I think are the two that are left in the value that we can add to our alumni. And I've always said this, it's content and network. What can we provide that's unique to LSE in this example? Uh, 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 from a content standpoint is you have some of the best renowned, you know, researchers and faculty of, in the world who can speak to your base delivering content. But you also have a unique, although you can get the network on LinkedIn, 
you still own the network as LSE. That's your network. And that's the two distinct propositions that I think we can offer. So I think what we're seeing, outside, even in the U.S., we're seeing more schools leveraging those. But outside the U.S., you see those are the two areas where we're content and network, where you see inst- international institutions leveraging the connections with their alumni in that regard. Chris Kendrick, can you comment just a little bit on that on, the, on that follow-up thought on sort of athletics-related engagement? Yeah, and, and I know, Ryan, you and I have spoken slightly differently about the role that looking at sports can play in engagement for us, and it is very different for us in the UK because while, while people will be members of um, various sports and, and athletic teams, there's nothing like the same fervor. We watch on Friday Night Lights, even a high school element that you have in the States. For right. like, what on earth is this? You, <laughs> you have stadia for college football bigger than our professional Premier League stadia. It, it's it's astonishing. Yeah. So we don't have that. But when I first joined LSE, I was immediately struck by something you just touched on, Chris. That enduring connection to the academic rigour of the institution and, and the social impact that we have uh, I've only worked at LSE in the sector. I imagine it's the same in other institutions, but there's a, a, almost a, an astonishing pride in what LSE's role in, in the world is. And I think that's the hook that we can always go back to. And that's the same with recent graduates and graduates of the 50s and 60s. That, that still hangs uh, hangs up and, and stands true. So it's a really inter- interesting hook. Uh, and Chris, there's something for us to do in the, in the global engagement about learning from professional sports membership. So I don't know if you want me to talk about that now or a bit later on, but I think it's something that we can really do that might be interesting. Well, well let's follow up on our, our topic du jour, which is a global alumni engagement, not as though we've strayed too far from it, but you have a massive international alumni audience, including here in the US. You mentioned actually earlier that you have, a, I think, a New York office, right, right for LSE. Um, what have you discovered about LSE alumni that live in the U.S.? And from an organizational standpoint, how do you think about and prioritize engagement strategies for alumni that live in the U.S. versus other places in the world? Well, immediately, there's that historic engagement of alumni with their alma mater in the U.S. that uh, is not the same in every part of the world. And speaking for myself, if I didn't work in the sector, I had a fabulous time at university. I can't guarantee I'd have stayed in contact with my alma mater because it didn't come naturally to us. That's in the, I was at university in the 90s. It's embedded and ingrained in how I think a lot of you behave in, in the US in particular. So that's that can be seen for us that our oldest recognized alumni group is our alumni and friends of LSE in the USA. Hmm. It's, it's significant because ahead of the curve, probably not in the US, but for us here, like, wow, an alumni group, that's, that, you know, that's amazing. And, it, and it's a very different set of expectations that come from that. We've had a wonderful team in New York um, for the best part of two decades. And they obviously understand the local nuances of the audience with the connection back to the school too. So that works works well for us. But we've got around 27,000 alumni in the USA just for, just for context. So it's a, it's a significant number of, of people. What we see is that high affinity so for many U.S. alumni, their year or years at LSE, um, possibly the first time they'd lived abroad. So a formative experience in their lives. And we're not actually competing with other alma mater in the same sense. We've got our complementary space. So a lot of our alumni volunteers I talk to, those particularly from the U.S., love where they went to uh, in the States. They love LSE. They engage with both institutions, perhaps in slightly different ways. There's probably a bit more nostalgia for us because if it is that formative experience, it's slightly different. But it just allows us to really work slightly differently and to recognise that the challenge we have is where we can't quite match up to the expectations of of what takes place at the big institutions. Because while we compete intellectually, we don't necessarily have the same resources for our programmes that some of the US institutions do have. Right. Can I go off script for a second and ask? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's your, it's your show. You're the host, though. Um, right. Chris, how closely do you work with your colleagues on the development fundraising side to think about those 20,000 alums in the U.S. of those who have capacity, potential, who can make significant gifts or any kind of giving to the institution? Is that a part of the strategy that you're going to coordinate with them, or are you thinking more broadly only? So we're obviously we're part of the same philanthropy and global engagement office, and we work very closely with our development colleagues. We know that there is a more advanced relationship with philanthropy in the US than in, in other parts of the world. And in terms of even understanding the potential connection in the pipeline between engagement, volunteering and what can come next in terms of um, philanthropy, in terms of cash support, 
that's further advanced in the US. So we we work to try to bring forward the opportunities for engagement that help in those conversations for the fundraising colleagues. So we, we're getting much better at joining up within our um, international strategy for engagement, but it's always been there. It's always worked pretty well, but I think it's fair to say that we there are more advanced relationships with alumni in the US than there are in other parts of the world at certain moments. Yeah, thank you. They're just pointing out too in our chat, we had two people chime in, uh, Lindsay and Kimberly, that they saw a decline uh, in uh, in-person event attendance since pre-pandemic levels. But Lindsay notes that virtual engagement has uh, diversified things and really opened up engagement opportunities for people around the world, which is a perfect segue to my next question for Chris Kendrick, which is, in our pre-show call, we talked about the idea of content co-creation which is, I'm not sure it's like phrasing that that we use very much in this space, but I think we're going to start talking about it a lot more and how it's an important part of building a global alumni community. Can you share a bit more about the concept of content co-creation that we discussed and how you anticipate using content to drive engagement? Yeah, and it's, it's something that I'm excited for us to work differently on as well, because it's something that's different for how we've behaved in the past. So the idea is that there are two strands to it. Internally, we'll work with colleagues to see how those beyond alumni engagement and communications can get more involved in what we do to, to engage our external audiences. So move away from what maybe a historic model of we want something, we want comms to help us articulate it away we go. We want to get people to become owners of their own content internally so that we can recognise their expertise and the relationships that they manage in the institution. So that, that's one strand to it. The more exciting bit that we want to get to is how we engage external audiences and primarily alumni volunteers in the first instance so that we change our habits. I think in the sector we can be a bit guilty of um, talking at our audiences somewhat. So here's what we think you like. Here's what we need to tell you. Here's a call to action with variations in between. And, and I think that's fine and it has worked, but I think people's expectations are a bit more sophisticated now. So what we want to do, and we're using the auspices of our, our Shaping the World campaign, is to to actually harness that intellectual curiosity of our alumni to advance conversations that are key to us, but key to them. And I think become better at storytelling so that there's a shared conversation, not something that we're prescribing from the institution. Um, it's early. We're, we're working through this. We've been doing some great work with an agency called Pickle Jar to help us take forward the content strategy. But if it evolves, as I hope it will, it, it changes how we're able to, to plan content together and to give people voices from their peers. Because while they often you know, we expect that everyone wants to hear from senior faculty, from school leadership. A lot of alumni have said to us they also want to hear from their peers. So if they're hearing from their peers in terms relevant to them, but about issues that are relevant to all of us, I think that's probably quite an exciting area for us to develop. Yeah, and I, I was just helping another uh, university the other day who's hiring a digital engagement uh, uh, person for their team and the, and the, the words influencer and contributor, guest contributor, and these words that imply sort of bringing aboard a, a group of alumni to and donors, right, who can help tell stories alongside the university that uh, create a two-way conversation with people. And so that, as you said, you're not talking at people all the time. Um, but Chris, Marshall, hearing Chris Kendrick's thoughts on content co-creation, what do you see as the role of digital engagement moving forward when it comes to building a, a global engagement strategy? Uh, it, it, simply, simply put, it's the best chance we have, I think, to engage at scale without, you know, if you had unlimited resources, you could do a lot of things, really, really cool things. But we don't. And most institutions listening to this um, podcast don't have even the resources of an LSE or fill in the blank any other institution here in the U.S. that has, there's some places that can do this very well because their budgets or pockets are deep and most places can't. And so scaling it is the only way to do so is through digital. And the other thing I've been pushing clients, even, you know, some more elite schools that have, you know, bigger budgets, I say to them, the content exists. We don't need to create the content. We can curate the existing content and put it forward to our alumni in ways that are meaningful to them. And every day there's lectures going on on campus that alums would be interested in. How do we um, track what those are, make sure they're available, record them properly or make them available live if we can do so. And curating that content is, I think, a role of an alumni office more so than creating content, frankly. Chris, do you do, you do any of that kind of curation work around LSE to deliver? So that that's a part of what we're discussing, too. So there's the co-creation bit and then the curation aspect to it. Yep. 
what we're working towards and and it comes around to question around technology sometimes too but is to to do that mass engagement at scale that you refer to chris so that we're, we're able to to tailor pockets of content that exist already and purpose them for different audiences in slightly different ways and we've done it reasonably well over the past couple of years but there's so much more we can explore different places to take it and that also requires an exploration of how we look at perhaps personas and and trends within the database rather than we, we know a lot about behavioral um data to do with when people open a link or volunteer or give we've not always had wonderful insight on their attitudes to certain things right. and i think that's what we're trying to build up what database are you using at lse we use advanced so it's it's been with the institution for a number of years and i think um yeah there, there are limitations to any system aren't there and i think i think yeah. we we know that we need to move forward in in the next few years with with a more sophisticated approach to how we use our crm yeah and you made a call out to pickle jar communications earlier and tracy Plale, the, the leader of that organization is really one of the great minds in our space when it comes to content strategy in the education sector so uh I interviewed Tracy years ago for a different show, and um, she had a great story to tell. And if those of you who have never heard of Tracy here in the U.S. and Pickle Jar, you should definitely take a look uh, at her shop. Chris, um, Chrissy, uh, we talk about faculty and using curating. Do you use alumni to deliver any of the content? An alum expert who's written a book, or so we we have we've sourced various um, alumni participants in panel activity and sure. talking yep. where they've got. But this is what I want to change in terms of a lot of the digital content. This is right. this is the move forward to try to engage um, industry experts who are alumni or, or thematic experts around sustainability yep. or yep. social cohesion. That that's the way forward for us. I think it's going to be quite exciting. Yeah, very cool. Well, and sort of add on top of that, uh, Chris Kendrick, where do you see the need for continued innovation in the field of alumni engagement? I think it comes back to to technology too. And, and I I don't know how it is for you in the States necessarily, but for us, it feels like everyone has, had, has more sophisticated user experiences in their daily lives that we try, we're a bit behind. And that's not just to do with us, perhaps in other parts of the world to the US, but I think if our if the experience we give them is stuck in the 90s while their daily consumer life is hurtling towards the, the 2030s, there's a problem, there's a disconnect. And I think we've got to be cognizant of the sometimes the impediments that we have in terms of how quickly we embrace technology. So for us, for over a period of years, it was, let's get an app. Well, by the time we thought about getting an app, it had moved on significantly. Let's have a, basically inventing LinkedIn for universities. Well, LinkedIn exists. So let's work out how, how we how we take that forward. And I think if if there can be space for technology and the ability to be brave, to think slightly differently and to not fear failure, either to try something, it doesn't, you know, of course you don't want to upset your audiences, but you want to be able to try things. If they don't work, you learn and you take that forward. And I think innovating can come in different guises. Yeah, to that end, I was just thinking about this yesterday. I, I ordered a, um, two articles of clothes, two pairs of pants the other day, and I was they were expensive. And so I was stuck at the cart. I was like, I don't, I'm not, didn't push the trigger on that. And I got an email saying, do you want us to give you two for one so that you go ahead and do that? And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to, I should do that. <laughs> and then, and then hours later, they were like, we have another color. If you buy that, we'll give you 30% off. I was like, gosh, I, I darn near did that. And then a day later, they're like, we're actually announcing our new color next week. Would you like to get on our mailing list? And I was like, I almost, I almost signed up for, for that too, to get text messages. And so it's, it's just very sophisticated in the private sector as to how engagement happens and, and how conversions happen, right? Whether it's a gift or a sign up for something. And it's just so impressive to see that advanced technology in action. And then to think about, we have, we have very little capability to do that type of a thing. We're just starting to get with advanced technology like Salesforce Marketing Cloud or Eloqua or some of those other uh, tools that are out there, but wow. Um, Go ahead. Did you want to add a thought to well, that? I just gonna say, but the, the positive thing is we are getting there. And I think yeah. that's what we've seen yeah. over the past couple of years. There is a willingness in teams to try new ideas and to try things. And, and I love that. I, I, let, let's do what we can. We have to recognize our responsibilities, but to try to bridge the gap between that consumer external world experience and what people might historically have expected from their alma mater, because we can do a lot more. Uh, I totally agree. It's what gets me excited about the space that we're in is there's so much opportunity for growth. 
But we are bumping up against our uh, top of the hour, which means we are uh, finished with our live broadcast with Chris Kendrick. Of course, we're going to head to the Zoom room and record our bonus segment. But before we do, uh, Chris Marshall, who is our guest on the next alumnus? Dan Olds from Bowdoin College. Dan has a lengthy experience in the business. Um, he's at Colby College for a while, went down to Queens University in Charlotte, and he's back at, uh, up at Maine and Bowdoin College for the past year. And the topic is going to be focused around engaging and managing volunteers, um, international volunteers from their perspective, but also micro-volunteering and the work that they're doing. Some really cool stuff right now around focus group discussions with their alumni that I've been part of, and it's been a lot of fun. And so Dan will be our guest in two weeks' time. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll say goodbye. Have a great weekend, everyone. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the podcast edition of Alumnus to hear our bonus section with Chris and all of our other guests. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you in two weeks with Dan Oltz. All right, we are back with Chris Kendrick, who is the Deputy Director of Alumni and Supporter Engagement at the London School of Economics and Political Science. It is not just the London School of Economics. It is has political science in the title too, which how come it's not LSE and P? I mean, that there had to have been a conversation at some point about that. <laughs> I, I think LSE became such a, a globally recognized um, yeah. acronym. It's, it's just become the way forward, hasn't it? But yes, LSE and PS. Right. It was kind of a kind of a dumb question, right? It's LSE sounds <laughs> rolls off the tongue really nicely. But it's fair to say that um that LSE is one of the world's most recognizable educational brands. I mean, I think even people who aren't familiar with schools uh overseas here in the US or elsewhere are have heard of the London School of Economics. And uh, I thought it would be good for listeners to hear from you on to, well, what does make LSE such a unique school and um, why have we all heard of it? It's a really good question. And I, when I arrived at LSE 10 years ago, it was very specifically LSE that I wanted to join. So I'd, I'd worked in the charity sector and really enjoyed myself and, and I had a successful time there. But LSE just resonates in terms of what it wants to do in the world in terms of a social impact. So, no, we don't have the medical sciences, but a lot of what we do can help to underpin the advancements in global societies from politics through to medicine, everything that changes the world, hopefully for the better. And that just sticks. And it might sound a bit trite, but it still holds true. And I think um, generations of alumni say the same thing and that desire to have a positive impact. And I think we're, a, we're still a small specialist university. We have around 11 or 12,000 students, obviously online courses and, and executive education opportunities too now, but it's, it's not a map. We don't grow and grow and grow for the sake of it. And I'm not saying other institutions do, but there could sometimes be a temptation to do that. And the quality of our academic rigor is something I've touched on earlier, but a lot of our alumni will remember key academics and things that they said to them in their, their experience on campus and in their education that have stayed with them for the rest of their lives. And a lot of the people historically that we've been able to, to count among our faculty are globally renowned in their field across all sorts of spheres. So it's a really strong message. We've got a, la a Latin school motto, Rerum Cognoscere Causas, which means to understand the causes of things. We use that a lot. And at first thought, oh, crikey, we're using it again. But it still works. It still resonates. And it still means something to our alumni. Yeah, that was really great. And the area of London where LSE is located, is it is it part of like an education sector of the city there are other colleges right around it like how would you describe where in london it is and the feel of the campus so i think that's part of our strength too because we're right next to the royal courts of justice so we're, we're in central london it doesn't feel like a, a closed off campus it's there living in london so you walk out of our offices turn left and you've got the royal courts of justice where on any given day you'll see news broadcasters with whatever's gone on uh there We've got the city not far away. So it's industry, it's politics. It, it's just alive and at the heart of London. And I, and I think that gives students a very different experience when they're at LSE, but it's a wonderful. And it's not quite the same as being, yeah, as I say, on a maybe a red brick campus or somewhere out of a town. You're there, you're in London. You've got Covent Garden across the road. So I think it just makes it a really dynamic place. And we've 
really invested in the infrastructure of that campus. I think some of our alumni from the 60s and 70s would probably frown at some of their experiences in some of the buildings in, in years past. It's a re- We've not lost that personal touch of the institution, but there are some really fabulous facilities that we're able to offer now as well. That's fantastic. I need to come and visit at some point. Um, but so over, we've talked uh, over the last couple of years a, a few times, and, and I've sort of been aware of the um, reframing of alumni engagement work that you've been doing there, the rebuilding of the program and taking a different direction. You've been really rethinking the entire approach to alumni and supporter engagement at LSE. And maybe you could share just some of the changes you've been making. You mentioned the content co-creation piece in the in the live broadcast. Yeah, I, I think um, for years, our various teams had done a really good job in different, but maybe sort of siloed ways sometimes. Absolutely, absolutely accidentally, it, it can just happen. So we had a really good alumni relations team putting together nice events and content but it wasn't connected to the whole and and you could have a lovely written piece a lovely article and it was great and everyone thought that was lovely but it didn't again didn't connect back to the whole we didn't have ways of tracking what engagement looked like so a few years ago ben plumber power joined us from oxford and we wanted to change how we thought about it and to bring together what are the core engagement teams in terms of alumni together so now and under the umbrella of alumni and supporter engagement we've got what was alumni relations we changed it to alumni engagement communications for the division um regular giving which has come through recently and now supporter relations which includes our donor relations and events function for uh, alumni friends and partners so it's all there collocated in one team and we're working out the benefits of that but it's a bit more complementary and a bit more joined up but having a framework for what that engagement should look like seems such a basic thing to have and I, I've just observed in the sector it's not always been there and I think there's a lot of missing information around the interactions that we have with our alumni until there is a behavioural action and this is what we spoke about over the past couple of years so when somebody volunteers or attends an event or gives we start to know more about them or we think we do and I think we wanted to build up a base for future generations so that we serve alumni we, we give them ways to connect in ways that matter to them and we build up a better picture for the future so that in 5, 10, 15 years time, there's a better base of knowledge for us about how we can make that a reciprocal relationship with them and the institution. It's a quick follow up, Chris uh, Marshall, before you answer ask your question. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about Protopia because Protopia is uh, I have a relationship with uh, the Protopia team and, and you use Protopia, I think, as part of that acquisition strategy, right? Thinking about that lightweight touch point at the top of the engagement funnel. Maybe you could just briefly articulate sort of how you think about Protopia and and using it to ask, you know, send questions to alumni around the world. Yeah, of course. And and it's a really exciting development for us to look at what AI, I mean, you're much better place, obviously, to talk about it than I am, but to, to look at what AI can do for conversations with students, recent graduates and more experienced alumni to bring them together and to not have us stuck in the middle of it. And I think too often there's been a request comes into the alumni team, the alumni team farms it out, and then we work out how there's a connection. And before you know it, there's a there's a circle that's taking a lot of time to be rounded and to be complete. And I think it's letting those exchanges take place um, in a safe environment, but where people can pose questions, where they get the answers immediately. And I, and I love the idea of it. And it comes back to my, my point about technology, to try to embrace things, to try to embrace what people would expect of their lives away from their university is a really exciting opportunity for us. So we're able to connect um, students and recent graduates with alumni who've been on that path before and now they're elsewhere in the world, hopefully going on to great things with their lives after LSE. And some of the qualitative analysis that we get from it is just lovely to hear. And and it's, it's really uplifting to hear what what the role we can play in making those connections without feeling we have to be the connection all the time so it's it's brand new obviously we've not been working with it very long but it's it's an exciting pilot for us to be looking at awesome thank you that was great i feel like i need to say that portion of the broadcast was brought to you by protopia (laughs) (laughs) it was a little bit of a plug but you know it's a good product and I'm, i'm glad you're experimenting with it chris I'm going to go back to the, you know, the the evolution of your thinking as you run and begin. You know, how long have you been in the role at LSE? First of all, so I I joined um, 
uh, our team 10 years ago and it's only over the last five years that I've been heading up the alumni yeah. support engagement function previously I was in solely in communications for alumni supporters and then then took on this different role you know, one of the things I've seen is people gone through what you just described in terms of the timing and we especially coming out of a pandemic and we start to refocus rethink about our strategies moving forward a lot of schools right now are in the middle of strategic planning processes of what we're going to do what we're going to focus on over the next three to five years and all of that work I always talk to them about what are you not going to do? And when you go through this process that you've been going through, I'm sure there's been things you've stopped along the way. And there's been resources decisions that you had to make about staffing and budget allocation to different things that you were going to try. You're going to pay for a Protopia, for example. Are we not doing something else with that money or is it just additive? And all those decisions can be difficult for a leader in the role. What have you, any specific examples of things you've stopped and what are you using to help make those decisions and guide your, you know, yourself? What is your North Star as you make those kind of decisions? Yeah. And, and I think it's always challenging when you stop something because you will get feedback fairly instantly. And our, our <laughs> alumni are incredibly engaged, demanding and aware. So, so you know, if we stop something, we will know about it. If we know that it's landed. So a few examples one, one a bit further back, so I won't go into it too much, but we used to have a printed alumni magazine, at great expense to, to the institution. Sure. And it was a good product, a really good magazine. But because it was printed, we couldn't track anything to, to the interactions with it. And so there's lots of wonderful anecdotal evidence about it being great on the coffee table. It makes people feel connected. And that is absolutely true. We were spending significant sums of money to not know what its impact actually right. was. Right. Um, we thought there'd be great pushback. There wasn't. Obviously, some people were disappointed, but a lot just didn't say anything at all, which is alarming, comforting, whichever way you want to look at it. <laughs> More recently, one of the things that we've chosen to stop, which is is slightly different, is um, class reunions. So as an institution, I think we learned this, we borrowed this from North America. We were copying the model of having class reunions at various stages. So when I first came to the team a decade ago, we were having five and 10 year reunions and they were lovely but they were resource intensive sure. and given our, given what I said earlier about there being 64% of our alumni overseas, that's a massive burden of expectation that people can physically come back to campus. So now with technology, we can do things slightly differently. So we're trying to harness the, the research output and the wonderful con- public engagement content differently. We have a festival week at LSE and that's taking place in June. So we plug various alumni programs into it rather than looking at reunions right now. Now, it's not so we won't ever do reunions again, and we do encourage groups to, to organise their own activity, and it's not always bound by class year either. I think people have different affinities, yep. not the sports thing to the same extent, but they will have. So that's something that we pause so that we could try to explore other areas. And I think um, it's a challenge. I, we don't know whether, it, as I say, don't know if it will be permanent, um, but we're trying different things, and we can't just keep adding. We've got to work out what the balance is. What's guiding you on those decisions? Is it certainly financial time, you know, people, all those things are factored in resources, but is there something else that you're saying we want to, our goal is to do this. We want to get to this point and that's guiding these decisions that you're making to stop anything. So so there's two strands to that. First of all, was we've recently got back into the habit of having a fairly comprehensive alumni survey. So there was a hiatus of, of probably five or six years where we didn't have one. We did one in 2019 with the ambition of doing it every two years. Great. And then along came coronavirus and it changed yeah. slightly. So it was 2019 <laughs> and then 2022. But to really listen, and, and I think that's that point about not just thinking we know what people want. So we were going to ask questions about what they thought was missing from our program. And if we could then look at some of the solutions, we can't do everything and some of them won't be realistic, but to be able to say, if we try this, what does this look like for our future engagement? So we're offering something that benefits their relationship with the institution. And then we can see that in terms of how they engage with us in future. Another part to that is how we've changed, how we measure our activity. So we obviously went in the public phase of our campaign. Now it's a really brilliant thing for the institution. It's going well. We set some engagement metrics, which we'd not had previously, and we, we, we've we got the case alumni engagement metrics as a very clear framework. Not quite perfect for us, and we're not quite perfect for that. So there's various things in communications in particular yep. that we need to change slightly. But it just changes how we think about what we're trying to do. And I, and I think that, that speaks to the earlier point about being some wonderful stuff taking place, but it wasn't necessarily always coordinated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot of programming that goes on as I look under the hood at different places that that it's been going on forever. So that's the reason we keep doing it. And it doesn't make sense towards 
yeah. as you just were describing, even if you just simply want to measure the impact it's having, it will often tell you we're engaging the same people over and over again by doing these particular events. And so um, I, I love the way you're thinking about this. It's great. Thank you. Did you did you have to go to bat for those changes or did the leadership on the team really support the that your vision or that that vision of um, the incorporating engagement into the campaign goals? Yeah, it, it's been brilliant. So uh, the leadership fully got the need for us to make sure that alumni felt a part of the conversation. So it wasn't just a philanthropic campaign. And we we, we very clearly embedded uh, volunteering contributions as a part of that. And I think I think we might talk about that in a moment. But there, there's been a really clear emphasis over the past five years or, or so for us to really recognise the largest part of the school community comprises alumni and we need to have them at the heart of our thinking and our conversation so it's, it's a, it wasn't a battle into it was, it was everyone embraced it internally i think it's been really positive i, I always tell schools that it's the largest and, and only permanent constituency of your of your institution exactly. everybody else will transition through and they're smaller so exactly that yeah and how do you think about the word supporters right um broadly speaking um these are community members, these are parents, these are students. Like, how do you think about not the non-alumni aspect of your work? We, we've changed that fairly recently to, to make it broader and also more specific. So we, where we talk about alumni, friends and partners, our division has evolved. So we now have global academic engagement and also corporate engagement as part of our wider function. So a lot of emphasis on non-alumni relationships. In terms of su supporters as, as, a, as a broad base label, we want to engage members of the community who seek to advance the institution with us. And I think there are different ways for that to happen. And I think too much emphasis perhaps has happened uh, globally in the past around supporters always being philanthropic. They absolutely matter. They're fundamental to what we do. But there, there are so many other ways in which advocates can help to advance the institution. Uh, a lot of our volunteers play a, a very prominent role in helping um students to feel like a part of the community returning alumni to feel part of their communities around the world when they get back from lse so the, the, there are different definitions but um it, it's meant to be a, a warmer way of recognizing a wider cohort of people who play a part in the life of the school thank you i appreciate that L lse we've talked about uh, reputation an amazing place i would expect that you leading the alumni program at lse you probably feel a little pressure to be innovative and to try new things and to be the best at what we do in this space as well. Do you feel that on a regular basis? Where does your, what do you think about innovation in general in our space? I, I do. And I, and I think what's sometimes frustrating for all of us working in advancement, and I think it's probably around the world, but, but you two can correct me is there's an absolute willingness to innovate and there's not there's not a clear desire for people to impede that just sometimes universities can be fairly bureaucratic institutions sure. and while we can be absolutely creative in how we advance knowledge and policy and shape re you know create research that shapes the world sometimes the mechanisms behind the scenes are a bit clunky and a bit slow and i think that's where the pressure can be when we will have some very eminent alumni who are brilliant in their field working in some pretty sophisticated environments we don't match those expectations and it's not for the want of trying and it's not their fault. You know, we can't say to them, sorry, we just can't do that because that doesn't stand up. So I think right. the frustration sometimes come in just in the, in the, the ways in which we sometimes have to work, but it's actually nobody's fault. It's, it's the environment. So all we can do is keep trying to build it up to make it better. Yeah. And Chris, I, I have often used the LSE alumni hub website as a gold standard example of a really fantastic presence, digital presence for alumni and supporters. Uh, I regularly share it with folks that we work with. And um, could you share just a little something about how you've been thinking about your digital presence and how does it play into your overarching strategy? Yeah, of course. And, and this comes back to mentioning when we launched the public phase of our campaign, because we have a campaign website which emphasizes the the need for and impact of support to the, to the various priority areas for the institution. But we were really keen to demonstrate that the campaign was also, was not just primarily about people giving something back. We wanted to offer something to our alumni through the auspices of the campaign. So the alumni hub brings together our various learning opportunities, support resources, and community content for alumni. 
And Kerry Jones, I know, Ryan, you've met Kerry, our head of alumni engagement. She's fantastic. And she just drives the team through through a pandemic to make all of this possible. They they took the platform that we had and, and in a really short time frame to turn the alumni hub into something um, that's much more in keeping with the, the digital experiences people have elsewhere away from university. I keep going back to that, but I know that university websites are always a few steps behind, aren't they? Oh, we'll, we'll look like the BBC one. Well, BBC's moved now, so how do we change? <laughs> so I think I'm really proud of how she and the team worked remotely from afar to bring that together and at the same time the campaign site was being built so we serve two slightly different audiences with them but there's always the connection back to the campaign from the hub and from the campaign site back to the alumni hub as well yeah they're, they're really what i like about it is is the integration of the content from the campaign to the alumni site the way that fundraising messages are are nicely uh, interwoven into providing content providing resources right just as you described i think if you are listening to this on the podcast, you ought to hop over and, and check out the LSE Alumni Hub because it's a really great web presence. Um, another aspect of your strategy I'm familiar with is your goal of increasing the amount of time alumni spend volunteering on behalf of LSE. And you're tracking time, actually, as a as a key metric, which I think is, is great and interesting. Lots of schools are tracking volunteers, but not necessarily time spent. And so why is that important for you all? And, and how are you tracking that? Well, it, it's, a, it's a starting point to get somewhere better, I hope. So we had a range of wonderful volunteer activities taking place all around the world from the committee led experiences where there's almost a defined way of counting the hour, hourly contributions to mentors meeting with students and recent graduates. But we had to bring that all together to try to have something comparable with a philanthropy target for the campaign. Now, now my take is that the volunteering hours method is, is imperfect. It, it's inadequate. It doesn't demonstrate the, the depth of the impact. So it's a starting point for us. What I really want to get to is a better way of connecting back those volunteer contributions to the impact of, of the campaign. So it helped X number of students. It helped to advance a digital program for uh, the wider community. So it's it's good but it's flawed and i think that's the bit we, we need to count it we need to demonstrate to alumni volunteers that what they do matters and i think in the past we didn't we weren't even able to track it so the teams put a great deal of work into being able to to count the hours and and um track that performance globally which is no mean feat when we've got 80 international groups and chapters all over the place it's a it's a big endeavor but that's just got to be a part of what we do in future. And I really want to connect it back to demonstrate impacts. I think volunteers would appreciate that more as well. Is it a self-reporting tracking system or is it an estimate of potential hours based on the role or how, how are you coming up? With so we, we assign um, and Carrie's the better person to speak to on this, but we assign time <laughs> to the type of activity. So we've got an advocate, yeah. you know, gift an hour. There's an advocacy program that, that's easily defined with some of our committees and senior volunteers we can't possibly accurately measure the contribution they make because it's profound. So we we, we sure. try to, but then again, how do you ascribe value to one person's hours over another's either? So it, it's a, it's a starting point for us and it's going really well. I just really, really want us to become more sophisticated and, and I think that we will. Ryan, you, you, we're aware here in the States, there are some institutions that actually track similarly the hours and they assign a monetary um, value to it. Um, there's some organization that calculates that the average cost of a volunteer hour, something like 25 or $30 an hour. You have a thousand hours that have been given by a volunteer. That's a $30,000. And they monetize the value of the time and hours. I've seen several schools do that attempt, um, made, make that attempt. And it's interesting to think about it. When you do it in an aggregate across an entire population, it's millions of dollars. And um, it's fun to think about. I'd love to hear from it. Sorry, Ryan. No, go ahead. I, I just said, I'd love to hear from institutions who found another way too, because I, I think there's a gap and I, and I really we we really want to explore it as a team and again it, it was a huge amount of work to get to this it, it works well it's great I think then when we want to demonstrate impact there's just another layer that we we know we need to get to so if you're listening to this and you have an idea for Chris or want to hear more about what Chris is doing just reach out Chris do you want to share your email address yes c.kendrick at lse.ac.uk Right. Yeah. Time is such an interesting measurement because on, on one hand, it's you know how many times, right, have someone engaged or after the first time of engaging, how much time goes by before maybe making a gift or how do you associate a volume of time of volunteer contributions as yeah. you just described. Like, time is a really interesting sort of variable in the work we do that's 
it's like it's not in the case engagement metrics, right? Uh, we're not reporting out broadly as oh, a right, community yeah. on time in any kind of meaningful way. We're kind of dancing around it, but it's a really interesting component of what we do that's sort of embedded in almost all of it, right? Yeah. I, I, and, and just to add, I, sorry, Chris. No, you go. You go. Just to add as well, there's a slightly different component that we've introduced over the past couple of weeks, which I love, and that's to ask alumni around the world to talk about how they're volunteering in civil society. So uh, not just volunteering for LSE, but yeah. having an impact on the world. And it's been beautiful. We've got uh, alumni in Colombia planting trees, people supporting um, homeless organisations. And I think that comes back to those LSE values that we speak about. Yes, volunteer contributions that enhance our work as an institution are, are, are greatly appreciated and imperative. But then the actions that people take in the world around them is, is really, really precious too. And I, I love that we've started to develop that. It doesn't count in the same way, but it shows the impact on the world in different ways. Yeah. Uh, let me add this in. That I, I believe that the case metrics was a great moment in our industry's history because we finally agreed on something and it, it's not perfect. I think it's a good yeah. breadth measurement of engagement. But when we get into the depth of giving, depth of volunteering, depth of fill in the blank of any of those things, it doesn't measure that. So to me, it's the starting point in measuring the work we do in our field. So in, in the evolutionary stage, if you can get the case metrics right, you're crawling. How do we walk? How do we run? How do we fly? Correlation, causation, predictive modeling is down the road for us, but we got to start here. That's why I think yeah. it's great that people are just attempting you know we're trying to get this right you guys doing the same so exactly it was, it was brilliant to have it at the time that we were starting out that was being launched and it, it we were just hugely appreciative because it gave us something to to work towards and again yes there's nuance you need to do things slightly differently but it was a really good starting point yep agreed when you think about how to scale engagement, alumni doing things in their own communities is is really only one of the truly uh, scalable ways yep. to, right? I mean, because it's not about hosting events and things of that nature. It's about motivating people to act and embracing alumni in their communities doing good as part of a culture of philanthropy that the university uh, tries to instill amongst its alumni, right? Um, so it's it's a really interesting way to be thinking about global engagement and uh, bringing it all the way back to sort of the title of our our episode, why that's really an interesting approach. But Chris Kendrick, before we let you go, we always ask our guests about inspiration. Where do you find it? Uh, the books that you read, the music that you listen to, the podcasts besides alumnus that are part of your uh, <laughs> rotation, what would you recommend to listeners? So from a work perspective, and this isn't intended to sound awkward, but when I was setting out to look at what I thought things could look like for us with alumni and supporter engagement, that's when I stumbled across your work, Ryan. And I just, I read various articles on LinkedIn. I thought, I like this, this resonates. And it does, things won't always match perfectly across the ocean. I, you know, things, things are different. But to, to look at the effort invested in thinking about our sector was really, really important to me. There was a report I looked at from years ago, which was on, on Ohio State, which was creating an alumni and supporter engagement framework. I think it's from about 2011. I think that involved a, a consultancy in relation to that. And I found that this is great. So one of the things I like is being in control of your own learning as well, because we can often be directed at things that people recommend to us. And that's terrific. But to be able to use our own agency to advance our our, our understanding of our sector and our careers. Yeah. So I really go, I, I like organically finding things. I don't think that's probably a particularly helpful message, but I love just stumbling around and we've got great resources available to us to be able to do that. So, so that's the starting point. In terms of what I'm reading, I think we've become guilty as a generation of staring at our phones. So we stare at a screen all day and then we just stare at a phone all evening. And I'm trying to teach my kids to not be like that. So we've got a, a family thing this year where we need to read a minimum of 12 books, which doesn't sound impressive, but it's just it's just for the months of the year. I'm currently on Stanley Tucci's Taste, which um, the, the documentary series he did in Italy. I'm neither a talented chef nor an, nor an aspiring one. It, I just really enjoyed it. And I'm really enjoying the book too. And it's a break from work. So I don't know what will come next. I haven't got a plan for it, but I, I like to look at things that aren't necessarily something I'm good at or familiar with and to, to learn more about that. What was the one, Ryan? Music, wasn't it? If you have if you have uh, something that's that you that stands out there for inspiration. So in terms of of when working, I don't know if I'm just really old fashioned, but I can't bear to have lyrics while I'm working. 
it confuses me. My brain's not big enough. So <laughs> I, I obviously go for classical music or some of the modern stuff like Max Richter, where you've got lovely com, you know, compositions of, of classical straight modern music. I enjoy that. And then I was in my uh late teens and the mid-90s. So everything that entails from the British indie scene is, is pretty prevalent in my in my ears for leisure. But um generally speaking, it's quite varied. Awesome. Well, as to wrap things up, I'd just like to point out that Chris Kendrick said I am one of his, I, Ryan Catherwood, of one of his inspirations, which I think is a first on a long All list. right, all right, all right, stop. Here's <laughs> ego going into the weekend. <laughs> and uh, also, um, your point about reading, I just had the same inclination. And I'm like, my kids are watching me when they go to bed. They walk right by me and see me staring at the television. I'm turning it off. I went to the library. I got two books out of the library and I am determined to be reading a book as the last thing that they see before they go to bed. And <laughs> exactly. I, I also like reading the book too, which has been good. So, um, all right, well, let's leave it there. It was a great conversation today. Chris Kendrick, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you, Chris. Chris wonderful Marshall. time. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank good you for having you. me. Good to see you, Chris Marshall. Thank you so much as always. And um, have a great weekend, both of you. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye.